Well, I am excited tonight to begin a series of studies entitled Defending Your Faith. Defending Your Faith. And as we begin this study on the first and third Sunday evenings of each month, I want to introduce this topic by attempting to whet your appetite for the div- for the defense of the Christian faith. I want you to become very excited about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others and being able to talk with anyone about spiritual things on any level. Wouldn't you be thrilled to be able to interact with a friend, a co-worker, someone within even your own family about the truths of Christianity and be able to do it well. In Richard Pratt's very, very helpful study manual entitled Every Thought Captive, which is an apologetic for the Christian faith and how to share the gospel, he says this very thing about the benefits of apologetics. And you'll hear me use that term quite frequently in this series. And when I use the term apologetics, I'm simply referring to the defense of the Christian faith. I'm not referring to our need to apologize for Christianity. I'll make that very, very evident that apologetics in the biblical sense of the term is the idea of defending our faith. Richard Pratt in his helpful book says this with regard to the benefit of apologetics. He says the importance of apologetics can be seen in many ways. An ability to defend our beliefs will make our evangelism more effective. We do not have to fear bringing up the subject of Christianity with our friends and neighbors if we are to give answers to their questions. We need never fear the highly intelligent unbeliever if we are able to defend the faith. Evangelistic zeal is increased by the study of apologetics. Moreover, the one who hears the gospel can often have his doubts cleared up by the by hearing the correct answer to his questions. Beyond this, a biblical apologetic strengthens the believer's faith. Many Christians are plagued by recurring doubts. These doubts often cause the believer to fall short of his potential ability to serve Christ. Apologetics enables the believer to ward off many of the temptations toward infidelity he may experience. This ability will in turn make it possible for him to pay attention to other matters of learning and service. Even the Christian who never experiences problems with doubt can gain the added confidence and enthusiasm necessary to be a more obedient child of God by a thorough study of apologetics. Apologetics is a subject of great importance for all and should be of great interest to all. He's absolutely right. Apologetics, the defense of the faith, the way we define Christianity, it strengthens us. It encourages us. It arms us with the ability to defend the truths of God. It would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it, to have the confidence, not in and of yourself, but a confidence in God and His Word, that no matter a question that would come to you, you would be able to respond with a reasoned defense of Christianity on the basis of God's Word. Now that's, I'm sure, the goal of everyone. It's my goal 
to be able in any situation that I come across with someone who is highly intelligent or someone who has uh, degrees in theology itself but who is liberal in their orientation, anyone and whatever situation it may be, a reasoned response on the truth of God and His Word. I was very interested in a parable that Richard Pratt gives at the back of his book, Every Thought Captive, And it really gives what I think is a very good introduction to the subject of apologetics. It's quite lengthy, but I want to read it to you because it really puts you and me in the place of recognizing where we are and where we need to be. All of us, I'm sure, have had times in our life where we've had uh, the cold sweats when someone asks us a question that we don't have the answer to. Or maybe in a witnessing situation, uh, someone might ask us a question or challenge us to defend our beliefs and we come up cold and short and we think to ourselves, I need to know that truth in a greater way or I need to be able to respond with an answer to this question so that people can respond to the gospel. Oh, if I were only able to study a little bit more so that I could defend what I believe. Well, Richard Pratt takes us through this little parable, and it's quite a good one. And it really shows us both the right approach to apologetics and also some of the wrong approaches. He says, There was once a man by the name of Defenseless Denny. When he heard the gospel, he turned to Christ as his Lord and Savior. Full of joy and full of zeal, Denny visited his next-door neighbors, certain Cindy, and David Doubter No God. Mr. and Mrs. No-God were his closest friends before he became a Christian. As Denny approached the No-God's front door, he remembered the many evenings they spent together scoffing at all their Christian neighbors. Denny hoped that Cindy and David would come to know the new life in Christ which he had been so freely given. Certain Cindy and David Doubter had heard of Denny's new religion, and as they welcomed him into their home, they were determined to change his mind. Confrontation was inevitable. Denny tried to tell the no-gods of their need for salvation, but at every point, Cindy and David would interrupt with objections. You don't really believe your religion is true, do you? Cindy exclaimed. This religious talk is ridiculous. You and I both know that Christianity is unscientific superstition. Come on now, Denny. You can't expect me to believe something that isn't proven. Denny was surprised. After all, he didn't have that much trouble when he heard the gospel. Maybe it's just certain Cindy's stubbornness. Then he said to himself, but David Doubter didn't react much better to the claims of Christ. Look, Denny, I know you're sincere and mean well, but I just don't think we can be sure about religion. There are thousands of religions in the world. We can't decide that one is better than another, another David said. You sure have become arrogant saying that we believe in Jesus and that we have to to be with God. You're too narrow-minded. I try to be more humble than that. David Doubter's response started Denny thinking, Maybe I didn't look into Christianity close enough before I committed my life to Christ. Maybe I was too naive. Maybe I am too dogmatic. Defenseless Denny left the no-gods discouraged and confused. On the way home... Denny met one of his new Christian friends, Freddie Factfinder. 
Freddy was loaded down with six books in each arm. He always carried lots of books and paper. Freddy had quite a mind, but as he always said, you never know what new facts will be discovered. When Denny told him of his encounter with Cindy and David, Freddy was sympathetic. He too had shared the gospel with his friends and had been discouraged at their unbelief. The problem with you, Freddy urged, is that you don't have enough ammunition to support your witness. You need facts to convince the unbeliever. Denny and Freddie talked for some time about evidences for Christianity. Freddie had found facts in all the sciences that gave great weight to the Christian view of things. In fact, Freddie carried an ever-increasing list of facts that support Christianity. Defenseless Denny was thrilled by the confidence that Freddie had and invited him to go along on a return visit to the no-god home. The no-gods were glad to see Denny again and welcomed Freddie into their home. Freddie was introduced as, quote, a Christian who knows the facts, unquote. This pleased both Cindy and David. Now they could better understand what Denny must be thinking. Denny tells me that you are not Christians, Freddie began. Is there any particular reason why you won't believe in Christ? I have found plenty of facts which make Christianity reasonable. Certain Cindy smiled and said, Let's hear why you think I should believe there is a God. Freddie reached for his list of evidences for God's existence and began reading them to Cindy. Number one, nearly everybody thinks there is a God of some sort. Number two, the law of cause and effect shows that there must be a divine cause for the world. Number three, the order of the universe points to a God who designed it. Freddie read with confidence. Certain Cindy pointed to a shelf of books across the room and said, Don't you know that those old-fashioned arguments were refuted long ago? You cannot establish God's existence simply because lots of people believe it. People have believed lots of things in the past which were later shown to be wrong. Besides, who's to say the whole world had to have a divine cause? The law of cause and effect is itself debatable. And even so, logically, it would point to a creaturely cause for the world, not a divine cause. Moreover, the design of the world could have come about by chance or by the efforts of many gods, not by your God. If you can't do any better than that, I'm afraid your facts are not too convincing, Freddy. Somewhat dismayed, Freddy turned to David Doubter. Freddy, David said, I'm not as certain as Cindy, but I do know that your arguments are not conclusive. It's awfully hard to know for sure whether God exists or not. I see evidence for it and against it. I think any honest person would have to remain silent on the question. Freddy was frustrated, but not defeated. Let's assume, just for the sake of argument, that there is a God, Freddy suggested. Cindy and David agreed. I think that Jesus was God, come in the flesh, and that the Bible is God's word, Freddy argued. Cindy and David responded, what sort of facts do you have to prove those claims? Well, said Freddy, Jesus claimed to be God, and he was no lunatic or liar. So he must have been God. Cindy couldn't remain silent. Look, I'm no lunatic and I'm not a liar. But if I were convinced I were God and said so, that wouldn't prove I was God. Besides, well-known historians debate even whether Jesus ever lived. And if he did live, whether he actually claimed to be God at all. You can't prove that Jesus is God because he claimed to be. You've got to find better facts, Mr. Fact Finder. What about the resurrection? exclaimed Freddy. Surely Jesus is shown to be God by the empty tomb, Cindy argued. 
To begin with, it would take many more facts than you're able to produce to convince me that Jesus was resurrected. I'm certain there would be a better explanation for it than his divinity. I have to disagree with you again, Freddie, confessed David. The myths of religions are so many and so unbelievable, it is impossible to know which ones are true. Nearly desperate, Freddie demanded, The Bible says all these things are true, and I can prove that the Bible is trustworthy. There are no contradictions in the Bible. The Bible is proven true by historians and scientists. The Bible even claims to be God's Word. So what? Cindy contended. I think there are plenty of contradictions in the Bible. Show me the logic of saying that Jesus was a man and was God at the same time. Besides this, there are plenty of noted authorities who say there are clear differences between history, science, and the Bible. David Doubter concurred, I'm sure you mean well, but I'm afraid you haven't presented a convincing argument. At that point, Denny interrupted and said, Why, Freddie Factfinder, you're as defenseless as I am. I thought you had it all figured out. I did too, replied Freddie. I guess I've never run into unbelievers who could think so quickly. We need to go home and find some more facts that we can use. What's the use, Denny said. You go and find your facts. They've been little help to me. So they both said goodbye to the no-gods and went their separate ways. The next day, defenseless Denny ran into his Christian neighbor, Benny Biblebanger. After listening to the events of the last evening, Benny said, I could have told you that would happen. Freddy Factfinder goes about things all wrong. You can never argue unbelievers into the faith. All we can do is preach the gospel and demand that they believe. It was evident to Denny that Benny was at least partially right. All of Freddy's facts couldn't convince Cindy and David. Maybe Benny is right. Maybe we should not try to defend the faith, Denny thought to himself. Let's go visit the no-gods and see if your approach is better than Freddy's, Denny said. Benny agreed, and the two set off for another confrontation. Cindy and David, Denny said, I would like for you to meet my friend Benny Biblebanger. By this time, the no-gods were suspicious of Denny's Christian friends, but they did not wish to be rude. Come in and have a seat, David said reluctantly. Benny began to share his faith in Christ with David and Cindy, saying, I want you to forget what Freddie Factfinder said to you yesterday. He was wrong for trying to prove Christianity to you with evidences. Christianity is not reasonable. It is a matter of faith. Benny continued, The fact is that science and reason are of the devil. To know God, you have to just believe what the Bible says by faith. If we try to think through the claims of Christ, we will never know the truth. Why should I believe in the Bible, certain Cindy asked. You must believe because it is wrong not to believe, Benny replied. Do you mean that we have to give up thinking altogether? Yes. I don't know about David, but I'm convinced that you Christians are just pulling at straws. You know as well as I that Christianity is ridiculous, so you can claim that thinking and reasoning about it is wrong. I will not believe in the Bible without some basis of belief, Cindy concluded. I'm afraid I have to go along with Cindy, David said. If I can't reason about Christianity, then how can I decide if it's right or wrong? From your perspective, one religion could be just as true as another. I had a hard enough time with Freddy Factfinder, but I find your view impossible to accept. Disappointed once again, Denny took Benny by the arm and grumbled, Come on, Benny, let's go home. 
Later that day, defenseless Denny saw Chris Christian. It wasn't long before the no-gods became a topic of discussion between them as well. You know, Chris, I was really disappointed to learn that the Christian faith cannot be defended, Denny confessed. Wait a minute, Chris interrupted. Christianity can be defended. It's just that Freddie and Benny don't know how to defend their faith. The Bible commands us to make a defense to everyone who asks, 1 Peter 3.15. I know that I believe in Christ, but Cindy and David were able to destroy Freddie and Benny's arguments, Denny remarked. Yes, I know, Brother Freddie and Brother Benny. They mean well and try hard, but they are not biblical in their approach. I'm not guaranteeing that Cindy and David will become believers, but I can promise that a biblical approach will give them plenty of reason to accept the Christian view. Moreover, it will encourage you and strengthen your faith, he said, he said sincerely. Chris, I have a hard time believing you, but I guess I can give your way a fair chance too. What's your approach? Chris Christian went on to explain to Denny what a biblical defense was like and how it would work out in different conversations. The first thing you have to realize, he told Denny, is that both Freddie and Benny had some correct notions about defending the faith. Freddie is right when he insists that Christianity can be defended rationally. Reasoning with the unbeliever is an important part of a biblical defense. On the other hand, Benny has made an important point. He bangs the Bible because man should never act as the judge of God's Word. Instead, he should have God's Word proclaimed to him as an unquestionable authority. But how can we fit these two ideas together, Denny asked. The Bible gives us the answer. In Proverbs 25, 5 and 6, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. I see, shouted Denny. On the one hand, we present the truth of the Bible as unquestionable and thereby keep from becoming like the unbeliever. On the other hand, we argue and seek to convince the unbeliever on his own ground, right? Almost, Chris replied. We use reason and arguments in both cases, but we argue by truth first and then we argue by folly. We present the biblical answer and evidence for the Christian view and we seek to destroy the unbeliever's self-confidence by using his own ideas against him. Let's go see Cindy and David. As Denny and Chris arrived at the no-god home, certain Cindy and David Doubter agreed that they would talk one more time with Denny's friends. Denny tells me that you both have trouble believing that Christianity is true, Chris began. Is there some particular reason while you, are, while you will not trust Christ as your Lord and Savior? There sure is, Cindy exclaimed. I don't even believe that God exists, much less all that stuff about Jesus and the cross. Why should I believe in God? Let me begin by telling you that my reasons for belief in God stem from my commitment to Christ. When I became a Christian, I became aware of God's existence in a way I had never been before. Yes, but that doesn't answer my question. Wait a minute, give me a chance. I believe that God exists because the Bible says so again and again. In fact, I cannot conceive of the world being as it is apart from God's creative activity. Everywhere I look, I see God's handiwork and His power. If that's the best you can do, then you're no better off than Benny Biblebanger. You're asking me to believe something that is not reasonable. I understand what you're saying, but from my point of view as a Christian, believing in God is very reasonable. Still, I'm not surprised you do not believe. 
you have not committed yourself to thinking, or you've committed yourself to thinking independently. I don't understand what you mean, Cindy objected. I just look at the facts and tell what I see. Cindy, I'm committed to trusting God's Word and depending on God for the answers to my questions. But you, you are committed to examining and looking at things independently of God's Word. Why don't you believe in God? Because it is unscientific. Why do you think being, un, why do you think being scientific is the way to truth? It's the only way of thinking that makes sense, Cindy replied. The way that makes sense to whom? To me. Ah, you see? You have set yourself up as the ultimate judge of what is true and false, and that's why you will not accept the Christian view of things. So what? I may have decided independently to reject Christianity, but you have done the same thing when you decided to believe it. It was your choice and your decision. No, it wasn't, insisted Denny. After I became a Christian... I learned that God was the one who chose me first and enabled me to believe in Him. I did not choose independently. That's what you say because of the Bible. It's not really true. You see, once again, you object to the Christian view because you seek to reason independently. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think you are independent and able to know truth without submitting to God in the Bible? Because I think all this talk about depending on God is ridiculous, Cindy said. Yes, but you believe it is ridiculous because of your commitment to being independent. You arrived at that conclusion on your own. So? So you haven't justified your commitment to independence. You have reasoned in a circle, saying that you believe you are independent because you believe something you decided independently. No matter what your answer, you cannot justify the commitment that undergirds everything you believe. Well, the same is true of you, Cindy urged. No, I do not claim that I am the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. He is the one who is the ultimate authority of my life. He is the one who supports my life commitment. I know that is foolish from your view, but my point is that your view is foolish and inconsistent, not just to my view, but to your own as well. How is that true? Your commitment to independence is groundless, and yet you want to be so scientific and logical. You are unable to escape that dilemma. I guess I see your point. Nevertheless, it is still true that belief in God is unscientific. There is no evidence for God. Have you been everywhere in the universe at every moment and then outside the universe looking for God? No. Then you can't say for sure that science is against Christianity. You cannot know all the evidence, and so you can't be sure there is no God. I know that science has shown evolution to be true, and God cannot exist if evolution is true. Evolution is just a theory. And until scientists know all there is to know about everything, we cannot be sure they are understanding correctly what they claim to know. You can't be certain. Cindy, in fact, since you're limited as you are and refuse to depend on God, it is evident you can't be sure of anything. If you want to be sure about something, you have to ignore this problem and have blind faith in yourself. You will never truly arrive at certainty. David Dowder could not remain quiet any longer. And that's what I've been trying to tell you all along, certain Cindy. But the thing you don't see, Chris, is that you can't be any more certain than Cindy. We are all unable to get enough evidence to know anything for sure, much less debatable things like God's existence. I guess that's why I'm agnostic. That's not true, David. I know God exists because God has spoken in His Word. 
He knows everything. And if I depend on Him, I can know truly without knowing everything. Chris responded. Yes, but we can't be sure that God has really revealed Himself or that He exists. We have to leave that question alone. David, your problem is that you want to be a doubter and stay safe from committing yourself one way or another. Yet, you are fully convinced and sure that we must be uncertain. You are just as dogmatic as certain Cindy. I don't see exactly what you mean. You do not know enough to know for sure that we must be uncertain about everything. You can't be sure that we cannot know God until you have searched everywhere and know that such knowledge is not possible. Chris continued saying, You both are doing the same thing and making the same mistake. Cindy is sure she is right, but to be sure she must not deal with the reality of her limited and uncertain knowledge. David is sure that he is right, but he has no way of knowing this for sure. You both ignore, ignore the plain facts in order to hold your views. But you have to admit this is the best we can do, Cindy replied. No, I don't, Chris said. You have the choice of ignoring the problem, going insane, committing suicide, or becoming a Christian. Christ can save you from this futility. He can give you hope and meaning in life if you will but trust His death and resurrection as sufficient for your salvation. Commit yourself to dependence on Him. You've defended your position well, David admitted, but we have no desire to become Christians. Well, the gospel is offered to you. I hope that you will consider the claims of Christ seriously. In John 3.36, Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Chris and Denny left the no-gods home and went to Chris's home where they prayed for the no-gods. Denny was encouraged. He was no longer defenseless. Both he and Chris gained hope that God would move in the no-gods hearts and turn them to Christ. Until that time, however, Denny and Chris would continue faithful to their Lord and to the defense of the Christian faith. You see, that's the right kind of evangelism. There's no way that we could ever reason someone into the faith by virtue of all of the proofs and existences of God out there in the universe. And the main reason why is that the Bible teaches that every man is depraved in his heart. And every man is already predisposed not to believing the truth about God and His Word. And so if you were to go into a discussion with someone, and if you were like defenseless Denny, or if you were like Benny Bible Banger, or Freddie Fact Finder, you would realize the frustration of your efforts. Maybe some of you have had those kinds of interactions with unbelievers and they've brushed you aside. But what I want to do in this series is present to you the kind of defense of your faith that's credible, but also the kind of credibility that is rooted and grounded in God's Word, for that's the only source of hope that will give us any credibility in anyone's eyes regarding Christianity. Now, as we begin this study, I want to introduce it tonight by telling you that there are two ways that Christianity must be defended. Two ways. Number one, I believe that Christianity must go on the offensive. Christianity must go on the offensive. As any good football team knows, 
You are not going to be able to win the game unless you had a solid offense and a solid defense. You cannot score if you don't have the ball. I was talking about this the other day with my son Lancer, and I was coaching him a little bit after playing in Saturday's basketball game, and we were talking about that dreaded thing in basketball that we call turnovers. And I said to Lancer, now Lancer, as a point guard, you have the ball much of the time. You're like the quarterback in football. And when you have that basketball in your hands, the only way that your team is going to score, which is the ultimate reason for winning the game, scoring more buckets than your opponent, you're going to have to realize that if you do not keep possession of the ball and turn the ball over, then your team is not going to score points, and therefore your team is not going to win. And so what I want you to do is I want you to concentrate on keeping possession of the ball. That is so very, very important. And if you're able to keep possession of the ball, if you're able either to shoot it yourself or to pass it to a teammate, that's the only way you're going to be able to score. And therefore, that's the only way you're going to be able to win. And he understood what I was talking about. That's the same as it is in Christianity. Christianity is not going to be seen as credible in the life of other people unless we go to them, unless we approach them, unless we take the offensive. And in order for us to see this from a biblical basis, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to show you probably what I would consider one of the clearest passages, if not the clearest passage in all of the New Testament regarding Christianity on the offensive. How Christianity can take a bold step forward. If Christianity is going to make an impact, then it must go toe-to-toe with those who disagree. If Christianity is going to make an impact then it must go toe-to-toe with those who disagree. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against what is true about God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now here's what Paul is saying. He's saying to the Corinthians, we are not warring according to the flesh. Now what he means by that in verse 3 is not the sense of flesh as Paul sometimes relates it. The idea of sinful humanity. What he means here simply is, we do not war according to human means. But we war, he says, according to the divinely powerful weapons that are available to us. He says, those divinely powerful weapons are for the purpose of the destruction of fortresses. Do you see that there in verse 4? In other words, there is an offensive initiation. You are seeking to destroy a fortress. 
And he says in verse 5, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against what is true about God. And so he defines for us exactly what he means by these warlike terms, fortresses and weapons. And what he says is, the fortresses that he has in mind are speculations and every lofty thing raised up against what is true about God. In other words, ideologies, people's theories about life, about origins, about their existence, about God, about who they are. And Paul says, listen, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you must take the offensive You must use the divinely powerful weapons that are at your disposal for the specific purpose of destroying fortresses, huge edifices that have been raised up against what is true about God. We would see some of those fortresses today, for instance, like evolution. Evolution is an ideology. It's a theory about the origins of life. It's not just about how the world came to be. It's also about the origin of life before this world came to be. Evolution is that fortress that has been built up. And my friends, it is a huge edifice. You cannot go into a university or college setting these days and go into a science class, a religion class, or a philosophy class and not be pelted from ear to ear, about evolution. And that evolution is a fact, and that it is a fact beyond all doubt. Now, you know and I know that it is a theory, and it is an illogical theory at best. It does not explain origins. And part of our series in Defending Your Faith will be to touch on evolution and why it is not credible. And Paul says... Whatever that lofty speculation is, uh, whatever that fortress is that has been raised up against what is true about God, we must take the offensive. We must say, that is not true, and this is the reason why. And he even goes so far as to say, not only are we supposed to destroy that kind of fortress offensively, but we're also offensively, offensively to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What a, what a statement. That everything we think, every thought that is in our mind, and you and I know that thoughts run through our mind in micromilliseconds. And God tells us through this man, Paul, that every thought we have needs to be taken thoroughly and obediently unto captivity to Christ. He says we're ready to punish all disobedience. Because really, in the final analysis, every lofty speculation, every fortress is raised up against what is true about God, and the equal sign to that is disobedience. And we'd like to be able to say, well, this is your theory, and that is your view of life, and you can have that, and that's probably right for you, or that's your opinion, and I certainly don't want to disagree with you. Let's agree to disagree. Paul says, not so fast. Every lofty speculation, every fortress that's been built like a huge uh, uh, Eiffel Tower against what is true about God needs to be destroyed, smashed, blown up to smithereens. You know, this is true 
of a number of other passages as well. You remember when we studied in Colossians chapter 4, and we saw there that a part of our life is built around the offensive mode of Christianity. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul says this, I want you to pray for us that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, Colossians 4, 4. Notice what he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. In other words, you're taking an offensive approach. You're taking steps. You're initiating a discussion. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You see, the, the implication is that Paul is saying we will respond to each person. We will initiate dialogue with other people. Christianity must be on the offensive. You remember in Ephesians chapter four, or excuse me, chapter six, verse seventeen, it gives the list of the armor of God. You remember there that the only offensive weapon is what? The sword of the spirit, and by divine interpretation, it says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All the other pieces of that armor are defensive in nature. They are all protecting vital organs. But the makaira, the sword of the Spirit, is used offensively. It's taking the initiative. It is cutting and hacking your way through the ideologies of life. It's you boldly and confidently in the power of Christ saying, wait a minute, that's not true. And this is the reason why. The Word of God says this. And remember, your confidence can be that as the Word of God works and operates, that it is so sharp, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to go through joints and marrow. That's a pretty fine cut. And it's able to go through all of the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. Nothing else can do that. The Word of God is your offensive weapon. And when you have the Word of God in your heart, and when you're able to do the Word of God in the way that God wants us to offensively bring it to people, then you'll know how you can respond to each person. That is really the essence of what the church is all about. 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You see, it's not enough for us just to say, well... If someone comes along and challenges Christianity, I think I can be there to defend myself. No. God tells us that we should go into the highways and byways and compel people to come in. That means that we must take the initiative. That means that we are the ones who are the pillar and support of the truth. We take the initiatory strategy to go to them. That's why I believe that Every Christian, in whatever sphere of ministry they have, should take an offensive strategy. I was so pleased uh, just this week to receive a call from a newspaper editor who said, I want to ask you a question. Would you be willing to be a regular part of a point-counterpoint series of articles in the newspaper so that you might present Christianity? Would you be willing, for instance, to present the view of Christianity with regard to homosexuality? 
Would you be willing to present uh, the view of Christianity regarding Christian education versus public school education? Would you be willing to present Christianity's view of Calvinism versus Arminianism? Would you be willing? And they went on and on. And I said, let me pray about it as I put the pen in my hand. (laughs) Of course I want that opportunity. Because Christianity is to be taken on the offensive. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of hearing all of the supposed answers of Christianity that are out there, that when you read it and I read it, we say to ourselves, that's not Christianity at all. That doesn't rightly represent Christianity. That's a wrong representation of God. And when someone goes away from that, they might assume, since no one challenges that, that that is a representation of God. And I, for one, want to be one of those that takes Christianity on the offensive. That's why when Scripture says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, that all Scripture is given to us to correct. And it's not just correct those inside the church, it's to correct all of those outside who disagree. Christianity is to take itself on the offensive in order to be the ground, the pillar, the support, the initiatory defense of Christianity that says offensively, hey, God is here and He is not to be mocked. And that is why we want to affirm this kind of apologetical approach. And that's why you can't ultimately reason an unregenerate person into the faith, even on the offensive. What I'm going to present to you in this apologetical methodology that is going to be a part of this series is a term that you might have heard before, and that is called presuppositional apologetics. Not evidential apologetics. Evidential apologetics or classical apologetics says that you reason with someone all the way from the point of the existence of God onward. I think that is a hopelessly failed approach at apologetics. I respect those who hold that view. I believe there are many, many good and godly men who hold that view, but I reject it as my form of apologetics because I believe that everybody works with presuppositions already in their hearts. And I believe that if we were to, by God's grace, give the right kinds of presuppositions and destroy in their hearts the wrong kinds of presuppositions, we're really coming to the heart of true apologetics. We're really coming to the place of defending our faith. And so that's what we're going to be all about. You say, well, is it wrong to try to reason with someone that there is a God and that He does exist? Yes and no. It's okay, I guess, if a person wants to talk to you about it, only as a springboard, however, as Chris Christian did, into a place of saying, you really are autonomous in your own thinking, aren't you? You're thinking independently of God. The reason why you don't believe a God exists is because you are the final judge of whether or not a God exists. You see, that's really the living out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that says the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. That's an ability verse. He cannot understand them. It's not just that he will not understand it, but he cannot, because his mind is natural. It's not been touched by the Spirit of God. His heart has not been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so therefore, he cannot understand spiritual things. That passage goes on to say, but the spiritual man 
He is open to the things of God. He does understand the things of the Spirit of God. And the things of the Spirit of God to him are spiritually discerned. Why? Because the Spirit of God has opened his heart to believe in the things of God. He has now affirmed the presuppositions that God is in existence and that God does reward those who diligently seek Him. And they also abandon their prior presuppositions that say there is no God. Or for a person who says, yes, there is a God, but who says, I will not be obedient to Him. They abandon that. And they say, yes, there is a God, and yes, I'm accountable to Him, and I realize that my life has been disobedience toward that God, and I now repent and place my faith in Christ so as to live under His Lordship. That's where we want people to come from. That's where we want them to go. Now, secondly, Christianity must go also on the defensive. Christianity must also go on the defensive. And using our little analogy here, a football team or a basketball team would not be a complete team and therefore would not be a winning team if they did not have a sound defense. I was talking to Lancer about his defense and I said, Lancer, I want you to play defense with your legs. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when you defend your opponent... You and your other teammates are very fond of reaching in to try to slap away the ball. And every time you reach in to slap away the ball, what does the referee do with his whistle? He said, he blows it. I said, why does he blow it? He said, because he thought that I was fouling. I said, yes, and sometimes you do actually touch your opponent and sometimes you do not. But the referee doesn't care. Whenever you reach that hand in, he will inevitably call a foul upon you because you're reaching. He knows, this referee, he's been around a while, and he knows that you must play defense with your feet. You must move your feet in front of your opponent so that when he moves in your direction, your feet are established, your position has been established, and if he knocks you over or if the ball flies away, that referee more than likely will say, that was his problem, not yours. That's good defense. And he understood what I was saying. Now, I've given all of this advice not because I was ever a good basketball player. I want you to know. I just have watched a few basketball games in my life. Christianity must take the defensive approach. And for the best passage on that, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. Peter says, from an opposite perspective of Paul... When he says, take the offensive approach, Peter says, take a defensive approach. In verse 13, it says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. In other words, beloved, this is in the context of Christianity being attacked. This is someone who is being persecuted for their faith. Uh, Someone who is being put on trial. And he says, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Why? Here's your response. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense 
To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And we derive this principle from the very use of the word contained here, and that is the word defense. And that is the word apologia. That's the apology of the Christian faith. Not an apologizing, but that word means in its original context to make a defense. That's why I've said that when we seek forgiveness of one another, when we've sinned against them, whether it's a spouse-to-spouse relationship or Christian-to-Christian relationship outside of marriage or in the church or whatever context it may be, don't seek someone's apology and don't apologize because that word itself means to make a defense. When you're seeking forgiveness, you don't make a defense. You don't have a defense. You seek forgiveness You know that you've sinned against someone and you say, instead of I apologize, please forgive me. So when we apologize for Christianity, we're making a solid defense for Christianity. And Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. You can see the defensive posture. You're standing. You're ready. You're attentive. You're always saying to yourself, I know that intimidation or fear or persecution... Or challenge is just around the corner and I must be ready to make a defense for what I believe. And that's Peter's point. Peter and Paul are like those in New Testament times. They were forced to defend what they believe. In Acts 22 verse 1, Paul says, When I made my defense... Now, their defending of their faith is quite a bit different than our defending of our faith. Paul was put on trial. Christ was put on trial. Peter was flogged in the city square and placed in prison. That's not the kind of defense making that we have to make today. I wonder what it would be like, what kind of vibrancy and dynamism the church would have if we were challenged to defend our faith like that. What would happen to our churches if Christianity was put on the defensive in a in an incredibly persecuted way like this. How many of us would be here? How many of us would stay the line? How many of us would stay the course? Would we say of ourselves and to all the world, I defend myself in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. And I will not recant. You remember we saw the film of John Huss And to the very end, he said, I will not recant. He was making his defense before a watching world. That's what it's all about. Paul always talked about his making a defense. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. That all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Boy, that's a tremendous commitment. I made a defense of Christianity. And everyone else deserted me. When the heat was turned on, when the persecution was at its most intense point, they deserted me. But I was there always standing ready to make a defense because I was sanctifying Christ as Lord in my heart. You remember what he says in the book of Philippians in the very first chapter. Again, the concept of defending his faith. Philippians 1.7 
For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And then he even talks about his calling as a pastor and as an apostle and as a theologian. He says in verse 16, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul was so much in tune with Christianity on the defensive that he said, this is a part of my very calling. Boy, could we say that as Christians? I believe that for me, as an individual believer in Jesus Christ, Christianity is both on the offensive and on the defensive. I'm going to challenge all of those ideologies out there, those mammoth fortresses that need to be destroyed, even if it takes me uh, with an ice pick against this huge fortress. And I'm going to be working a work of Christianity on the defensive so that in any case, anyone who comes to me, I'm able to credibly and vibrantly defend the faith of Christianity. Well, it's a pretty tough balance, isn't it? We have to really think about what we're doing in the Christian life. You say, yes, it's such a tough balance, I'm not sure I'm ready for it. Well... Remember now, the early disciples did not know if they were ready for it either. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, here's what I want you to do when I send you out two by two. I want you to be innocent as what? Doves and shrewd as serpents. That's the balance. And it is a tough balance. You don't know always what you should say. And so you have to be as shrewd as a serpent. And when you say what you say, you have to say it in such a way that you're as innocent as a dove. It is a tough balance, but God will give us the opportunity to make that balance a reality and then allow us to have all kinds of fruit bearing in our Christian experience. Here's what we're going to do in this series. As I've introduced it to you tonight, we're going to take this two-pronged approach and we're going to talk about Christianity on the offensive. And what we're going to do in that particular prong is we're going to take Christianity out to that world and we're going to defend it against all of the ideologies that are there. We're going to defend Christianity against the cults. We're going to defend Christianity against non-Christian religions. And we're going to defend Christianity with the social and ethical issues of the day. And then when we put Christianity on the defensive, we're going to say to ourselves... If I'm attacked with regard to what I believe, what do I believe? And we're going to make sure that we understand the creation account, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the return of Christ to judge the earth, salvation by grace alone. And we're going to continue to look at ways that you and I can arm ourselves to defend our faith. I think it's going to be a great study. I think when the whole series is through, we're going to be far more capable in the defense of our faith, both offensively and defensively. And I believe that God will be glorified as we study hard and as we defend our faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for giving us a wonderful introduction to our series tonight. I pray that you would give us tremendous opportunity to grow and to learn what it means to defend our faith. I pray that you would give us boldness 
as we defend Christianity and take it on the offensive. I pray that we would be able to destroy the ideologies of those that are far away from Christianity, these non-Christian religions, and even those who are close to Christianity, those that are masquerading as Christianity, and even taking Christianity on the offensive with regard to all of the social and ethical issues of the day. And Father, I also pray that in doing that, we'll do our best to understand what we believe. And if we were to be challenged ourselves, if someone were to take their offensive weapons and try to attack us, how could we be ready to defend our faith? Would we be ready? Would we be armed? Do we know what we believe? Can we defend it in a way that pleases you and stays true to your word? Oh, Father, I'm so excited about the opportunity to study with these dear people so that we might be approved workers, never needing to be ashamed because we've handled accurately the word of truth. May you bless us and make us a blessing so that in the end, Our apologetical outreach would mean the conversion of many souls by your hand and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.